I listened to this album and I thought, this is it. There's a group here that's finally kind of amalgamated all of the influences, the black influences and the country influences, and they put it all into one thing with songwriting and musicianship. And, it, and this is what it's about. proportion that has graced music from Big Pink has been there since the beginning. By the late 60s, everyone was buzzing about Dylan and the band and what they were doing in upstate New York. The band, which had become their name by proxy around this time, was gifted to them by the local community of Woodstock. Now this was before Woodstock as we know it today and the Summer of Love. This was the Woodstock that was a small and quiet conclave for artists. The band was the most unique and interesting prospect in those parts and they were working on their first album. And even before they dropped their first track, the myth was being built. As Stephen Earlwine mentioned in his article for Pitchfork, this narrative just didn't come out of the blue. Journalist Al Aronovitz wrote three lovely portraits of the band in 1968, appearing in Life, Rolling Stone, and Hullabaloo, covering every possible readership that made hay on what many years the band spent grinding out a living on the road. He treated Big Pink, the house the group shared with Bob Dylan in West Socrates, New York, with a near-mythical reverence. Now, music from Big Pink quaked the musical world. Its profound impact changed some of the largest artists of the day. George Harrison, Eric Clapton, they all wanted to join the band, or at least know them. And when it came down to brass tacks, it was the sound. In an era saturated by fuzzy rock blues, acid rock, and psychedelia, the authentic, raw, and roots music of the band was fresh air. The myth also dutifully perpetuated the creation of the album music from Big Pink, coming from the house itself. That wasn't the case. Yes, the basement tapes were recorded there in the basement of the Big Pink house, but music from Big Pink the album was a studio effort spanning coast to coast from New York City to Los Angeles. That being said, it doesn't quite expose the music as being fake or unreal, the band was able to claim the title of genre makers, Americana, funnily enough. The genre that is supposed to be encompassing Americanness of the music was created by a group of Canadians and one American in Levon Helm. And music from Big Pink blends country, blues, gospel, folk, and rockabilly. And it's now become a standard for a lot of artists, but it was unorthodox at the time. The music, which is steeped in tradition and collectively the band's love letter to the artists they loved, was really modern. Now to unpack all of that and go into what went into this album, this episode will go through the band's collective process in creating arguably their best album, and the album that skyrocketed them to fame. It starts with producer John Simon, the final piece before heading into the studio. The songs had been workshopped, but the band didn't have much prowess in the studio setting. Being a bar band turned touring backing band, it didn't give them the liberties to get into the studio outside of the minimal time they spent with Ronnie Hawkins and Bob Dylan. Robbie remembers he was technically light years ahead of us. He understood the recording console, he understood the recording tapes. We had hardly been around this kind of stuff. John brought it closer to home. He had all the expertise in the studio and we had none. And more than just the technical aspects, the band trusted Simon. In a lot of ways, 
During the process of creating the album, he was a member of the group, very intertwined with what they were creating. Simon was born in Norwalk, Connecticut in 1941. His father was a doctor and a musician who had founded the Norwalk Symphony. In high school, Simon became a jazz fan and a musician himself. He had a group and played baritone horn and brass instruments. He later went to study at Princeton, where he did drag musicals and wrote big band concertos in his senior year that were viewed favorably. After school, Simon landed a job in the classical music division of Columbia Records. Simon hated rock and roll trends of the 50s and the 60s and worked his way into the pop and jazz departments. In 65, he was co-producing a record called Of Course Of Course by a young jazz man named Charles Lloyd. That was the first time someone from the band met Simon, as Robbie came into the studio and helped cut on the track Third Floor Richard. Simon got his first major break producing The Circles, a group that was supposed to be the knockoff Beatles. They cut their single The Red Rubber Ball which went to the top of the charts. Simon was rewarded with a massive bonus in a corner office. With the explosion of rock music, bands would come into the studio without any talent on their instruments. And Simon refused to work with groups of this nature. And instead, he liked to work with musicians like Leonard Cohen in Blood, Sweat and Tears. And however great it was though, working with these great artists at Columbia, Simon was frustrated by being an in-house producer. At Al Cooper's suggestion, he actually went freelance not long after. Around this time is when Simon met Albert Grossman. Simon was aware of Grossman's power in the music industry and he had a large roster of popular musicians. That's how he worked first with Janis Joplin in 1967. Along with Big Brother and The Holding Company, Simon produced their seminal album, Cheap Thrills, which critic William Rollman later said was a musical time capsule that remains a showcase for one of rock's most distinctive singers. And apart from meeting Grossman, Simon was also connected with Peter Yarrow, who had been partially responsible for Dylan and the band setting up home in Woodstock. As previously mentioned, Yarrow was working on his film, You Are What You Eat, and had met Simon at Monterey Pop Festival in 1967. Simon showed Yarrow his work on the album from Marshall McLuhan's The Medium is the Message. Yarrow, liking it, hired him a few weeks later and he ended up in Woodstock working on the film. The soundtrack of the film included Paul Butterfield and Tiny Tim, who had a group of musicians working with him, the band. And like I said in the last episode, this is when the band made their first appearance meeting John Simon. It's worth noting John Simon's impression of each of the band members was interesting. He said, Robbie functioned as the point person, Garth was into horns and equipment and could play circles around everyone. Rick was hyper and business oriented, Levon was a gifted drummer, very much his own man in every respect, and Richard, a sweet, sweet guy. This group of eccentric characters and Simon began work on music from Big Pink not long after their meeting. From the offset, the band wanted to be different. Levon remembers, we wanted to make music from Big Pink sound like nothing anyone else was doing. This was our music, coined in isolation from the radio and contemporary trends, liberated from the world of the bars and the climate of Dylan tours. On Simon's recommendation, the band headed to A&R Studios in New York. The idea was to go in for a few days and lay out a few songs and get a feel for what they were creating. They were nervous but eager. And Robbie remembers, we had something to prove. 
we were working on songs and music that didn't even remotely sound like the stuff we had done in the past. Moving from upstate New York to the city was different. Being holed up for a year, the band had forgotten how different the city was. Loading gear into the studio, John Simon had help from Don Han, an audio engineer. He helped dictate where the band was supposed to place their instruments, where they were supposed to sit, and placed where the sound baffles between each guy would lay. They put on their earphones and put the amps facing away from their guitars. Instantly it was different, but the band followed along with the proper protocol and started going into their first song, Tears of Rage. Richard and the band ready to go for their first take. It wasn't long after before the band weren't feeling it. They just couldn't record in the isolated setup. It wasn't their style, especially for a group that thrived off of playing together as a unit. Taking that leap, they changed their setup. Rick and Richard facing each other, bass and piano. It allowed them to see each other, especially when they were singing, making sure they were locking in on those key harmonies. Robbie in front of Levon on drums, and Garth was placed between Rick and Robbie. One other key thing was taking away all the baffles. They also wanted to record everything live and not add anything later. This is how John Simon remembers it. We tried to record as much live as we could. And we also tried to get as many of the effects on the tape as we could, as opposed to putting them on later. Because if we made a commitment and put the effects on right then with the track, we would be stuck with that and everything else would conform to that and we'd be painting a much fuller picture as we went. The engineers complained that there would be too much leaking with the sound this way, but Simon was quick to respond that changing to a more directional microphone would solve the problem. Now the problem with that was they weren't as high quality microphones, sonically speaking. And while the mics were not as good, they stuck with them since it allowed the band the flexibility they needed. Each track was recorded live on three tracks with one left over for overdubbing horns. They played through Tears of Rage three or four times, and as the sound was coming through the booth, everybody was pleased. Heading back into the booth to hear what they had just recorded, it was like a revelation. Robbie remembers hearing the playback for the first time. Richard's voice and piano were sterling. Rick's harmony vocal was loose and soaring, and Levon's tuned down drums gave a thunderous heartbeat to the track and Garth Church Organ could bring tears to your eyes. Tears of Rage ended up being the introductory song on the album, and Levon remembers it was another way for us rebelling against the rebellion. It was very common to open the album with a rocker, a real banger. Everyone during the era was doing it. And it was just another way for the band to introduce the band's sound to the audience in a completely different way. This was truly the first moment the band could show what they were made of, but they were eager to keep recording. John Simon suggested they move next on to We Can Talk. The song heavily relies on the piano and organ and a group vocal effort with Richard, Rick, and Levon passing the vocal around. The song turned out beautifully and they were done that day. And that was just the first day. Regrouping the next morning, they started tackling the weight, featuring an interesting vocal harmonization. Gar stationed on the piano in the key of A. Specifically, the vocal was arranged with Levon taking the first three verses, Rick coming in on the fourth. Odd, but it worked. 
and with the swap of Garth on the piano, Richard took up the organ and they settled in. After recording through the song a few times, they felt comfortable. Taking a step back and looking at the weight, it really cements the myth-building storytelling that is so closely associated with the band. Full of characters and places all resembling a part of real people in the band's lives. First, Nazareth, referring to Robbie's obsession with the Martin Guitar Factory in Nazareth, Pennsylvania. And then Luke, who is supposed to be Jimmy Ray Pullman, the rhythm guitar player who was with the Hawks in 1957. And young Anna Lee, was a reference to Anna Lee Williams from Turkey Scratch, Arkansas, who was a friend of Levon's and had amazing Southern cooking. Now Crazy Chester was a man from Fayetteville that Bannon became familiar with, especially Levon. Every time he'd show up into town on a Saturday dressed up, loaded with guns, and would patrol the streets keeping the peace. They also inserted names like Carmen, Moses, and Fanny, as they fit the overall story of the song. Now with their odd setup, Engineer Don Han asked Phil Ramone, the chief engineer and co-founder of A&R Recordings, to listen in to what the band was doing. Partly because they were using low-quality microphones in an unconventional setup, after listening through, Phil was really impressed. He was thrilled that it was working. Against all odds, it sounded really good. And coming from Ramone, it meant a lot to the band, as he was a huge titan in the industry and gave them all a little bit more confidence. Next was Richard's song, In a Station, a splendid mixture of Richard's ethereal songwriting and Garth's magical touch on the organ. In a Station is a dreamy, slightly psychedelic take, chocked full of lyrics which invoke wonderful imagery. It's also about the Overlook Mountain, which is a part of the Catskill Escarpment near Woodstock, New York. Levon remembers that Richard used to laugh and call this his George Harrison song, by which he meant it was spiritual. Following station was chest fever. John Simon had made some adjustments to the arrangement and where the singing came in, but Garth again brought his stroke of genius. Chest fever is his song, coming in hard and fast with a hint of J.S. Bach. Along with Levon's pointed backbeat and Robbie's rift, the song features unfinished lyrics sung with a balanced strain by Richard. Horns were added by John Simon on baritone and Garth on tenor, as well as Rick adding some violin. And Garth really wraps up the tune with some of his finest organ work in rock music history. through by Levon on Robbie's only vocal outing on the album, helped with strong harmonies from Richard, Levon, and Rick. Kingdom is perhaps the most rollicking song on the album, featuring a strong guitar lick in E and the only really hard-hitting solo on the album as a whole. And lastly, during these sessions was Caledonia Mission, written by Robbie with a phenomenal vocal by Rick, back-ended by Levon playing a little bit of acoustic guitar and Richard on the drums. 
Perhaps one of the most interesting songs on the album, it received several interesting points of analysis over the years. Griel Marcus talks about in his book Mystery Train, Images of America and Rock and Roll Music, about the idea of the song representing the idea of the quester. Quoted as saying, looking for salvation, the quester ends up trying to save others. The woman of Caledonia Mission, she lives hidden behind a wall and the city has a lock on her gate. But there's simpler and more telling explanation behind these lyrics in my opinion. Ronnie Hawkins explained in a 1969 interview that the song is actually about their run-in with the Canadian Royal Mounted Police. He is quoted saying, I do understand the lyrics though, and better than most. The one about Caledonia Mission and being surrounded by Mounties, that was one time when they got busted out of the border. They're writing about true things, the things that happened to us along the way. And that Hawkins interpretation was later supported by Levon Helm in his book, This Wheels on Fire. With six songs recorded, the band headed back north for the winter. The Catskills was in the bush, which brings along a heavy snow and really terrible weather. Snowed in at Big Pink gave the band a perfect opportunity to plot their next move. See, the guys had limited budget, and with no money left, they weren't really sure how they were going to finish the album. They had planned to cut several more songs for the record. They found out that their Capitol Records contract stipulated that recording costs would be waived if they recorded at Capitol Records Tower in LA. Now, they just had to figure out how to pay for travel and housing, but it was hope. The ability to finish their album as they intended. Three weeks later, the band was in LA, scraping enough money together. They stayed in the castle in Los Feliz, where they had stayed when they were in LA with Bob during his world tour. Capital had set the band up with A&R man John Palladino to help them with their recording schedule. Nervous he may interfere, Palladino was actually the opposite. He was laid back and went with what the band was laying down. The real challenge was that at the Capitol Tower, it was a union shop, meaning John Simon couldn't touch the mixing board. To try to get the union guys up to speed, they showed them what they had recorded, but they were mostly uninterested, but at least willing to record how the band wanted. The first song they recorded in Los Angeles was Long Black Veil, the band's first cover, and a classic at it. They wanted to give the MJ Willen and Danny Dills song a more R&B flavor with a Woolitzer piano from Richard and a halftime drum by Levon. Someone killed me for town hall. Rick is featured on vocals on this track, and there is no better singer in the group to occupy this role. A plaintive song about being falsely accused is demonstrated so well by Rick's style of singing. The song is finished with the band's new favorite tool, a horn section. And like previous songs, Garth and John Simon added their mark with some horn arrangements. When it came time to record Lonesome Susie, John Simon was noticing an issue. The band was recording a lot of slow songs. And so after the first few takes of Susie in the original tempo, they tried a version that was more upbeat, more of a shuffle. After listening back to both versions, it was clear. While the better version was indeed the slower of the two, it was what was right for the song in the end. Susie was Richard's song through and through featuring his expressive falsetto paired with piano and a horn. Richard stated later on that Lonesome Susie was his attempt at writing a hit record. The song was more than that if you look deeper though. It was a self-portrait in a lot of ways of Richard's life. And Levon mused in his biography, Richard was complicated and felt things really deeply, more than most people. It was a quiet song that told a story and was pretty typical of Richard's general philosophy. Next was This Wheel's on Fire, a Dylan Danko tune. 
With the Dylan lyrics and the Danko music, the song is really distinctive. The ever-inventive Garth Hudson got an interesting sound for the song by running a telegraph key through a Roxochord toy organ. If your memory serves you well, Originally, This Wheels on Fire was recorded at A&R in New York, but the drum sound didn't turn out right, so Levon had to redo the snare in California. The overdubs were a hard and thankless task, and Levon wasn't particularly pleased. Nonetheless, the job got done. With work nearing the end at Capitol Records Tower in LA, the band still felt something was missing from the album. They were still getting used to the rigid union structure of the studio recording process and just wanted to get back to their loose style. Sensing this, Simon booked them time at Gold Star Studios to blow off a little steam. The studio was renowned for its unique custom-designed recording equipment, which was built by founder David S. Gold. It was also known for echo chambers. In the early to late 60s, producer Phil Spector used Gold Star as the recording venue for most of his famous Wall of Sound recordings. It was also the venue for many important recordings by the Beach Boys, including portions of their 1966 LP Pet Sounds and the international number one hit Good Vibrations. When the band got to Gold Star, they switched their approach, laying down a version of their song Yazoo Street Scandal, as well as covers of Baby Lou by Jimmy Drew and Long Distance Operator, which was a contender for the album, written by Richard. They also throwed in a cover of the bluegrass classic If I Lose. And while these recordings weren't meant for the record, they were a good way to reset and make the final push. The band finished it all off with I Shall Be Released. The strong closer on the album also happens to be the third song Bob Dylan wrote with the band. Funnily enough, Dylan even offered to play on the album but for numerous reasons, the band declined. I think mainly they didn't want to feel like they were coasting off of Dylan's name. Instead, Dylan later painted their album cover. Now, I Shall Be Released was a prisoner's lament, a sad song delivered by no one better than Richard with his signature falsetto. There was also a version of Richard singing it in his natural range that wasn't used. An interesting note on this song is the drums were an interesting process in the studio. With Levon taking the snare drum, turning it upside down and playing it with his fingers for a unique sound. We stroke that like you would a, a guitar string. Stroke them all together like that is what they sound. And I think we might have got it out of the out of the holder and got it up here like this. And they say every man needs They say that every man must fall. But I swear I see my reflection somewhere so high above this wall. Gar's part was playing organ with one hand and manipulating the stops with the other to get this hollow sound. Here's what Robbie said more on Garth's playing on the tune. Garth's sound. At this time, there wasn't much soundiness coming from keyboards. Garth often did things that you couldn't, you just couldn't tell what it was, what instrument it was. But he's just making that. This is not like oscillators and things. This is just the way he's playing and the effects that he has on it. And with the completion of I Shall Be Released, that was the album. 
Levon remembers the experience of recording Big Pink like this. The record was meant to describe our take on the crazy times we were living in. The year 1968 was like a civil war, a time of conflict and turmoil. By taking a look at the conflict of the 60s and funneling it through their old time sound, sometimes literally going back hundreds of years, the band is taking a look at America. Now back at the castle where the band was staying, they had some big speakers set up in their living room. The room had this amazing reverb that allowed everybody to really hear the music, and it kind of lingered. They had friends drop by and listen to their unmixed songs to get reaction. In particular, Robbie remembers when their old friend and drummer Sandy Koenikoff stopped by for a visit. Sandy closed his eyes and sank into the music. I thought, look at that, he's spellbound. And after the tape ended, he opened his eyes and said, can I hear that again? The sound was foreign, and while that sound was good, it was original, there was fear that it was what Robbie described as inside, meaning too personal and not accessible for the listener. Nonetheless, the band went into mixing with John Simon at A&R in New York. Not too many people had heard their music yet, especially their manager, Albert Grossman. After showing Grossman their album, and after each track, his eyes lighting with glee, for the next three months, he boasted to anybody who came to his home about the band. And while they were all over the place recording their debut album, they were still making Woodstock their home. Levon remembers how much they were loved. The town took us in and treated us like their favorite sons. If someone asked if the band was in town, they would be talking only about us. And that's actually how the band got its name. And while they were hosting listening sessions at Grossman's Bearville Estate, Bob came over with his wife, Sarah. Of course, the album started with Tears of Rage, which Dylan had helped write, but after it concluded, he professed gratitude to Richard for nailing it. He congratulated them all for an effort done well and commenting on the music and the songwriting. And coming from Dylan, that meant the world. The album was finished and it was time to take some photos. Nobody knew who the band were, and they were never really in the limelight, rather in the shadows of Dylan's stage or in the dingy bars with Ronnie Hawkins. There were suggestions from every direction on who should take their photo, especially who is the best photographer in New York, was something that was a constant annoyance to the band. Instead, as a joke, they started asking who the worst photographer in New York was. But to their surprise, there were names being mentioned. It was around this time the boys became aware of an underground magazine called Rat that used photographers from a fellow named Elliot Landy. The photos were printed fuzzy and cropped in strange ways a fault of the magazine, and surprisingly Albert Grossman knew him. Apparently he had been a pain in the ass at the Janis Joplin shows in the past. But in May of 1968, the band posed for their first set of photos at Rick's house in Wittenberg, west of Bearsville, with Elliot Landy taking the photos. Richard had brought a collection of his hats with him, which everyone wore except for Garth. Infamously, during one of the first photo sessions, the wife of one of Garth's friends was dancing behind Landy as they took their photos. She then took it to the next level by tearing off her dress and dancing again, this time naked. At least it helped loosen up the band a little bit. Levon especially didn't like having his photo taken, but Landy navigated that by being a fly on the wall. He hung out at Big Pink and caught the band in their natural habitat. The photos were raw, just like their music. It was the perfect pairing. In addition to the photos at Rick's Wittenberg house, the band went to Rick Danko's brother's farm in Simcoe, Ontario take a picture for the inside of the album cover. Their next of kin photo featured the band's family and friends. Rick's family with his brother, a musician in his own right, Terry Danko, Robbie's mom, Garth and his parents, 
Richard's folks and siblings, the band's friend, little Freddie McNulty, and even John Simon were all invited to be in the photo. Levon's mother was ill at the time, so Levon's parents are featured in a separate smaller photo that was also included. The photo is really a commentary on the era. There was a lot of negativity and resentment towards parental figures, especially demonstrated in popular music of the time. The trend at the time, of course, was the, uh, the acid rock phase. That was the new trend. That was the new fad that was going on and uh, tune in, turn on and, and drop out, that kind of thing. And uh, hate your mom and dad and uh, don't trust anybody over 30 and uh, a bunch of other stuff that didn't make a lot of sense. And uh, we just you know, steered uh, clear of, of all that and tried to keep it on musical terms and, uh, and got away with it pretty much. Dylan, who had taken up painting as a hobby, had agreed to paint the band's album cover. In an abstract way, the finished painting had figures and instruments and elephants. It was the band and Dylan in the basement recording their tapes, or so some interpretations go and Dylan never really did explain the painting or what it was supposed to represent. With all these pieces, the band had gotten in contact with album cover designer Milton Glaser, and the finished product also included a picture of Big Pink. It also featured a written piece by Dominique Robertson, Robbie's wife. A pink house seated in the sun of the overlooked mountain West Saugerties, New York. Big Pink bore this music and these songs along its way. It's the first witness of this album that's been thought and composed right there inside its walls. The album was released July 1st, 1968, and to the shock of the group, it wasn't credited to the Crackers, like their contract stipulated. It read music from Big Pink by the band. Well, I guess it made sense. It was what the people of Woodstock had called them, and Capitol apparently didn't want to release music from Big Pink from the Crackers, unsurprisingly. Levon remembers back on Capitol's change. You know, I thought the Crackers was a funny name, and I still do. I was shocked when I first heard about the band. Calling out the band seemed a little pretentious, even blowhard. Burdened by greatness, but we never really intended it that way. The name aside, the summer music from Big Pink came out and became an underground hit. And while it wasn't commercially massive, people were interested. John Simon remembers people wanting to copy it. It was so new and it was so fresh with three voices, crazy organ. It sure had piqued musicians' interest as well. Just look at Elton John's sound on his first few albums. The mystery around the album and the band was potent as well. Through that and the nature of the record, this kind of mysticism got built up around the band. These guys, they're up there in the hills, you know, they're, uh, they dress weird. We, we didn't dress weird, we kind of dressed regular. Other people were dressing weird, you know, in polka dots and psychedelia. To note, there was no shot of the group on the cover, only Dylan's painting. There were no lyric sheets, rare for the time. There were also few interviews in the press. The band refused to do Capitol's promotional plan. And more importantly, there was also no touring. Levon's leg was still in bad shape from a motorcycle accident. Richard had burnt his foot in a bath belt with a barbecue. And that was fine. The band was content with making records, not eager to go back on the road. And while commercially the music wasn't perhaps there, the reviews were glowing. Al Aronovitz gave the band great reviews in Life and Rolling Stone, and Al Cooper told Rolling Stone, I have chosen my album for 1968. Nobody knew what to call the music. Was it country rock? Was it white soul? Mountain music? 
That's what Robbie called it at least. It was simple. It was music they made in the mountains of Woodstock. It was really the moniker of country rock that the band hated. When Grossman's office reluctantly gave an interview request to iMagazine in September of 1968, Robbie cleared the air. We have no name for the group. We're not interested in doing record promotion or going on Johnny Carson to plug the LP. The name of the group is our Christian names. The only reason the LP is by the band is that so it can be filed for record stores. A bizarre response nonetheless, it helped them keep people interested in the group. Other musical titans were also talking about them in the press. Namely, their two biggest supporters in George Harrison of the Beatles and Eric Clapton. The band even got a letter from Harrison stating that EMI, who was releasing their album in the UK, had botched it. They had released it in a single sleeve instead of a double fold jacket and had slapped the next of kin photo with the band graphic over top. Just poor quality. And Harrison had gone further and went to the press to say that the band was the new sound coming from America and everybody better pay attention. Clapton added in Melody Maker magazine that Big Pink had made his group Cream obsolete. Cream broke up at the end of the summer. And while the album was getting praise, and while the band didn't tour because of injury and reluctance, what was next? They still had a ton of music that they wanted to record for their first album, but didn't get the time to, or the money to, but they were eager to put it out. With more leverage from the surprise of the album, would Capital allow them to get back into the studio to continue? Also, some members were getting more at home with their domestic lives. Robbie was marrying, and so was Richard. The band was yet again trying to figure out their next move. So there we have it, the episode on music from Big Pink. Uh, it took me a long, long time to research this one and put this one together, and I'm clearly missing a lot because this history of the band, uh, particularly around this time when they were recording these first two albums, uh, is chock full of research and opinions and articles. So by no means did I, I get everything in here, but I hope everybody did enjoy uh, this episode. Uh, there's tons more information online, um, and I have a resource page on the website. Uh, if you go to the bandpodcast.com uh, and go to the resources tab, you'll see a list of resources that not only do I use for this podcast, but are just great resources if you're a big diehard fan like I am and want to know more about the band. Especially when it comes to taking a look at the songs and the meaning behind the songs and everybody's interpretations. Uh, especially on this album and the next album, uh, so many people have kind of put their input into it. And I tried to do a little bit in the episodes, but there's definitely a lot more. But I also want to give uh, a big thank you to our continued supporters, uh, two donors, Tim Peretta and Kenneth Rockburn. Your support is really, really appreciated here on the show. You can check out our Spotify playlist. It features music from Ronnie Hawkins, John Hammond Jr., Bob Dylan, the band, and their respective solo careers, and much, much more. And always a reminder to check us out on social media. We put a lot of time and effort into providing a great uh, historical uh, content perspective with really unique photos. And you can find that on Instagram. We're also on Twitter and Facebook at The Band Podcast. Uh, thank you for joining us for this episode, and uh, we're just getting started taking a look at what is a very rich history of the band, and I really hope you're enjoying. Uh, let us know what you think online, and uh, have a great day. This show was produced, written, researched, and hosted by Tyrell Listen, produced and edited by Tegan Chevrier with additional research from Fiona Chevrier. 
The Band of History is not endorsed by the band or any affiliated stakeholders. It is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. All audio clips are registered trademarks or copyright of the original trademark and copyright owner. achieve the American dream, the big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship. The studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.